Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Simon Wright, Assistant Director for Programming and Corporate Services here at the Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Art. I'd like to begin by acknowledging Jagera and Turbal peoples, the original custodians of the land we meet upon tonight. And I've got great pleasure in welcoming some special guests. Uh, Bill Hayden, AC, former Governor-General of Australia. Derek Brown, the State Director for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Queensland. Can I please also uh, note the apologies of Ms Lenine Ford, the Chancellor of Griffith University, Professor Ian O'Connor, Vice-Chancellor and President of Griffith University, and Chris Sainz, Director of the Queensland Art Gallery, Gallery of Modern Art. It's also for me to acknowledge that tonight's seminar takes place with the support of the Australia-China Business Council, Queensland, a body which is consistently assisted with the presentation of forums dealing with Australia's relationship with China. It's wonderful to have Michelle Robinson, CEO of the Council, here with us tonight. Finally, but most importantly, I'd like to welcome and acknowledge all of you, our audience, for our first Perspectives Asia in 2014. It's a very special year for us. It marks a full decade of the series. It's a great pleasure for Quag Goma to continue working with the Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University to bring you this series. And I'd particularly like to thank Andrew O'Neill, Director of the Griffith Asia Institute, and Natasha Vary for their close collaboration with the Gallery's Australian Centre of Asia-Pacific Art, ACAPA as we call it, in developing and staging Perspectives Asia. The Gallery is very fortunate to have a great team behind ACAPA, including leading curatorial specialists working with and within the region, including Russell Storer, Reuben Keane and Ruth McDougall, all of whom are here tonight. Perspectives Asia continues to be a hugely important initiative for us, providing a context for our wide-ranging exhibition and cinema programs of Asian and Pacific art. To celebrate our 10th anniversary this year, we've got a wonderful program of invigorating, informative and insightful talks by an amazing group of speakers from a diverse range of fields. It includes two special anniversary panels, bringing some of our most distinguished past speakers into conversation with new speakers on the subjects of politics, society and culture in the region, a looking back and a looking forward. Tonight, as you entered the building, you might have noticed the foyer displays which introduce our solo exhibition by leading Chinese artist Sai Gaozhang. The show features vast and ambitious works which respond to the Australian landscape, signalling the enormous confidence and strength of contemporary Chinese art and its long-standing connections with Australia. It's therefore fitting to have Australian journalist and author Mr John Garneau respond with an exploration of China's political landscape this evening. This is a subject John knows intimately, having worked as China correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age from July 2007 to June 2013. He's also a regular contributor to Foreign Policy magazine and writes occasionally for other publications, including Prospect, The International New York Times and Tsai Jing magazine. John's work on elite Chinese politics has been widely recognised. In Australia, he won the 2009 Walkley Award for Scoop of the Year for first reporting the detention of Australian Rio Tinto executive Stern Hu. This year, he also won the inaugural Lowy Institute Media Prize, awarded to reporters who have, quote, deepened the knowledge or shaped discussion of international policy issues in Australia. John's the author of the Penguin publication, The Rise and Fall of the House of Bo, and he's currently working on a second book, The Princelings, looking at the new generation of Chinese elites. 
John's presentation tonight will provide us with fresh insights into the working of China's leadership. Evocatively titled The Rise of Xi Jinping and the Destruction of Bo Xilai, his talk will trace Xi's remarkable rise to becoming a strongman leader, certainly a position that affects all of us. Please join me in welcoming John Garneau. Thank you, Simon, and thank you all for inviting me to this uh, terrific venue and a great city, and um, my wife and I have already had a great time. Uh, we, we just had a wonderful little tour of Tai Guo Chang's um, Falling Back to Earth exhibition, and I kind of thought, well, actually, that should have been the title of my show, and I'll, um, and I'll explain why. Really, the amount of history and mythology that goes into the, um, the, the current leadership and the inner workings of, of Chinese politics, um, there's so many layers and so much depth and so much sort of contestation about what really happened in the, in the past. But at the foundation of it all is really um, stories about how they fell back to earth, how they were in the firmament, how they were in the kind of... Uh, the stratosphere, and at various points they fell back to earth and then they, through various ordeals and hardship, they achieved sort of redemption and salvation. Uh, now, the seminal moment for all of, the, uh, all of the princelings who are in power at the moment was, of course, the Cultural Revolution and a period just a little bit before it. Uh, this is Xi Jinping's old man, uh, Xi Jinping, in probably in 1967 in Xi'an. So he'd already been in, in purgatory for four years or so, and he thought he'd seen it all. And then the Cultural Revolution came, and he went through it all again, fell through a couple more layers of purgatory, and ended up on the back of his truck being prayed around Xi'an as an anti-party conspirator and various other things. And the same thing was happening to his, uh, to his son in, in Beijing, Xi Jinping. So to briefly introduce the family, because I think families are at the centre of, or they've kind of become the only institution, the only durable institution outside the party, really, in China. And this is the family of, of Xi Jinping, one of the great founding fathers, the guy with the red cardigan down the front there. He is, I'm sorry about the fuzzy picture, but the family hasn't provided a better one. <laughs> <laughs> and this is our Qi Xin, who's the, who's the matriarch, the bottom left there. Uh, and at the back is the, are the siblings, Xi Jinping's on the top left, his wife, oh, his sister Anan, um, Anan's wife, and then Chao Chao, who has quietly accumulated about a billion dollars of assets, and Xi Jinping, the younger brother, um, down the back there. So they've had all very diverse kind of paths. They've taken the very diverse paths, but they all, I mean, their, their lives are entirely defined by where they came from, particularly the, the ups and downs of their father, Xi, Xi Jinping. Now, when I arrived in China in 2007, Tara and I got there in 2007, and really my task was to find out, it was, I went there to try and work out what was happening in the economy, and very quickly it seemed to me that, well, the old economic kind of tools don't really work in China. Well, I, you know, I need a new model, I need a new paradigm. And so I tried to work, at, work out how the bureaucracy works, um, and then I tried to work out how the political system works, and then I thought, Nothing makes sense until you understand how elite politics works. And so that's sort of been, I, I don't think anyone will answer kind of those questions, but that was, that's been my project for the last three or four years. And very quickly, I, it, uh, 
was confronted with the fact that China, that China had sort of been drifting really since '89, and there had been there was always a legitimising story. But after '89, it was more difficult. It was more contested. It was not obvious uh, why China needed a vanguard party anymore to lots of the um, lots of Chinese people, but also uh, groups jostling for power. There's lots of contest about what are we here for? Uh, you know, is it all just about getting rich? Is it about developing China into a, a strong country? Um, do we really care about all of that anymore? If so, um, we're still calling ourselves the Chinese Communist Party, and particularly we as the children of the Communist Party, you know, the princelings, how are we going to find meaning for ourselves, how are we going to insert ourselves into this process if we don't find a way to retrospectively revalidate this project, this old communist project. And so all of this is happening while civil society is being transformed, life goes on, people get rich, people get uh, economic autonomy, they have the freedom to move, travel, educate themselves, expand their boundaries in ways that's probably never happened in, um, in, in China before, uh, particularly with the advent of the internet. So I was there, in, you know, I arrived in the age of the blog, and within three or four years it had entered the age of Weibo, the microblog. And suddenly, and David Shack and I have talked about this, um, about how, how you know, Taiwan has such a vibrant civil society and China wants to have such a vibrant civil society, but because of the political institutions it can't happen in the same way. But in some ways this Weibo microblog allowed a virtual civil society to develop, and so people could start to connect with people with similar ideas, similar experiences. They could look up and think, well, not just in, not just my village chief, which demolished my house and took off with my wife, but it's you know, very similar things are happening to other people. And, and they could sort of, it became, you could see sort of people getting this new independent social identity and group identity and community identity independent from the party state and beyond their family uh, in ways that hasn't happened for you know, a long, long time. And I think this was just a, a revolution in, in the way that Chinese people see themselves and how they approach their world. And so the Communist Party, the new, you know, with this vacuum of, of leadership, vacuum of ideas and, an, and a um, contest, contested legitimacy, they have to kind of answer, respond to those social developments. So up until, you know, up until really September last year, I would, I would say you know, these, this is how, China divide, how Chinese politics divides. And it really did divide uh, since the lead up to the 17th Party Congress in 2007. You know, that was the first time where China had entered a party congress and anointed a new leader beyond the influence of, of the founding fathers. And so before then, every single other leader in the post-Mao era had been uh, anointed by, by the elders. And so Deng really uh, acquiesced to Jiang Zemin and then picked Hu Jintao um, together with Hu Yabang. Well, Hu Yabang had started his career in the 80s. But it was the elders who set the leadership succession in, in place Ten years ahead of, well, longer than that in the case of, um, of ten years ahead of time in the case of Hu Jintao. Come 2007 and the, 20, and the 17th Party Congress, there was no one who had that founding legitimacy to be able to appoint the next leader. And suddenly, Chinese politics got a lot more interesting, where you had by a de facto internal democratic process in the sense there weren't any institutions to handle conflict between these groups, but there was a real contest. There were no real 
understood set rules about how leaders were going to be chosen, what the criteria uh, were, were going to be. So in that vacuum, as people were jostling, you know, I think we saw an extraordinary um, outpouring of new debate. It, the, the, the ideological debate became uh, polarised and fragmented in ways that hadn't happened for a long, long time since the 80s. There were Liberals, there were Maoists, they were all out there and they all had their champions in power. You know, you'll remember the, um, the, the striking contrast in, in comments by people like Borsulai representing this, however you want to call it, but this deep red quasi-Maoist sort of, you know, it's really a symbol more than an ideology, uh, but representing something about what the Communist Party stood for in the past. And then we had Wen Jiabao, the Premier, talking a completely different script about universal values, about the need for justice and, and, um, and democracy, because none of that had been foreclosed in any Communist Party ideology. Uh, but it hadn't been set. And without somebody at the top to dictate what... Um, meaning was, what truth was, what it was all about. Um, we had a real contest of ideas, but it wasn't just ideas that were floating around. Of course, it was um, uh, increasingly, particularly over the last 10 years, it became a contest over money and patronage uh, to an extent which I think is still not really widely understood outside of China, where money began to, to decide who got what promotions up to an extraordinary high level, really. And this guy, you know, this is the first guy who stepped forward and said, OK, I've got the answer to all of this drift that we're seeing. Um, you know, I'm, I've got the legitimacy and I've got the answers to this moral and political drift. I'm going to make the Chinese Communist Party relevant again. And what we need is a strong leader. What we need is somebody who can tap into what our father's generation fought for and get things done. Uh, we're not scared of cracking heads. Um, in fact, it's necessary in this system, otherwise it calcifies. And so here we have Bo Xilai. And of course, Bo Xilai is uh, got to, you know, he had a huge tailwind all, most of his life, thanks to his father, Bo Yibo. Um, and he had a, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting is in this project, as I've been learning more about the princelings and the people in power, is how different they are, and even though they all come from the same kind of pot, so to speak, there's very different roots. Um, and perhaps the single most interesting intertwined um, relationship in all of you know, modern Chinese politics is the relationship between Bo Xilai and Xi Jinping, and even their fathers going back, you, know, you really can trace it back to the 19. 30s. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. I wanted just to emphasise that you know, I'm really looking forward to your questions afterwards. I'll try not to talk for, for too long. You can go in whichever direction we like. But it, I'll just sort of paint the picture of Bo Xilai, what it meant to destroy Bo Xilai and how that has actually um, been used to create the new presidency of, of Xi Jinping. One of these princelings once told me that it's just like the mafia. You, know, you haven't made it into the family until you've killed. And I think there's a little bit of truth in that, particularly when you look at um, the way things have, you know, I think modern China since 89, it entered a new era in September last year, and that was the trial and verdict of Bo Xilai, and only then did we see Xi Jinping step forward and say, okay, now I'm the guy, um, and we've seen a very, very different politics since then. So Bo Xilai just like Xi Jinping has defined his whole life by being knocked down. This is Bo Yibo in an identical position to Xi Jinping. In the same week, 
at this time it's in, he's in Beijing, to that other photo we saw of Si Zhongshun. So Boi Bo, now I think I've come to sort of understand some things about what's happening now in terms of where they came from. And Boi Bo came from the, the Communist Party's underground, what they called the white areas. The, and this was required a very distinct mindset. If you're going to survive in the Communist Party underground in Shanghai, then they got obliterated, Tianjin, Beijing, um, Taiyuan, you needed to act and operate and eventually think in a certain way. It was all about really unbreakable relationships of, of trust in vertical relationships. You had your patron, you had your, um, you had your command chain, and you interacted with society, but in very, very defined, organised units. And so there was open, united front work. Most of what defined your identity was your relationship with your direct reports up and down the, the, the chain. It was all about loyalty. And for Xi Jinping's father, it was a very different tradition. So Xi Jinping came of age on the lowest plateau in Shanxi, and he built one of the most important guerrilla base areas, actually the one that saved Mao Zedong and the Long March survivors in 1935. So he was all about, his people were all about expanding um, the, the sovereignty of the party, so to speak, but with rural groups, with peasants, um, had to work with civil society. Unlike the white area guys, they were a long way from central command. They were a long way from party central. They were even further from the Soviet Comintern. There was no money coming down from above. They had to uh, they couldn't just, I mean, Mao Zedong's model was really a, had been a, a burn and pillage model in Jiangxi up until then. In, in the, the white areas where Boi Bo was, it was just very, very clandestine, smoke and dagger, cloak and dagger kind of operations. But Xi Jinping had to operate in the open. He had to win the trust of people uh, and he had to keep an economy alive, otherwise the whole project, none of them had anything to go by. You couldn't be too leftist, um, otherwise you'd just scare everybody away. It was all about very, very carefully picking your targets to unite new coalitions of, of civil society against. And so that, that was the, the red district, the red areas is what they called themselves. And so you had Xi Jinping's father's red area um, really being clashed together with Boyibor's white area to form the People's Republic around Mao in, in 1949. And these guys and these groups kept on sort of reinforcing their identities by being smashed against each other. Um, and now looking sort of 60 years on from 1949, they still, the, the children of these guys still talk about their mountaintops, their shantol, and their, their patrons and the, the martyrs in their particular tradition, and you know, sometimes explicitly, sometimes not, how the other side you know, did them over, did their fathers over, did their friends over. And they didn't just do them over like, you know, it's not even, you know, late, not even Sussex Street in Sydney kind of compares to what these guys <laughs> used to do to each other. <laughs> when Xi Jinping first, when Mao Zedong first came across Xi Jinping, he was literally in the process of being buried alive in a factional dispute in... Um, in Shanxi province. So the point being that the stakes are almost unimaginably high for these guys. They've been brought up in a world where, um, I was going to say live or die, the way they say it is, uh, you die, I live. You know, that's the, the Chinese expression that they often, often use. And I think that's been passed down, particularly when you consider that their children uh, were going through almost the same ordeal in the Cultural Revolution. So they fell back to earth. They were born princelings, grew up as princelings in the 50s, were smashed in the 60s, almost lost everything except for their families. And I think you can sort of now feel this sort of dynastic pull. Uh, you know, that was one of the roots of this dynastic system that we're seeing rebuilding at the moment. 
defined by hardship, but also there is nothing that can scare you after you've been through that. And I think that has all sorts of implications for China's leaders today, particularly Xi Jinping. Now, I just made the point before that, um, that money now buys power in China. Well, it has, particularly in the last 10 years. Now, Xi Jinping is, um, you know, he's got a new program. We're yet to see exactly how it works. But the old program was that money was one of the main ways. If you could build your own empire, if you could support your own patronage network, if you had the power to make appointments in various departments, you know, you got political power yourself. And so there was this recycling, a cycle of money, power, money, power. And the best example that we've got at the moment, uh, well, there's two really. Uh, both have come down. One was the former railway minister. The other one is, is this guy, Gu Junshan. He started out really as a mafia operator in, in northern Henan province. Um, he was brought down really as part of Xi Jinping's consolidation of power in the military by another princeling friend, which I, I won't go into, but just to make the point that this guy, he, uh, his assets, you know, his family assets are now half a billion dollars plus, mainly in real estate. He you know, ran the logistics department as a personal um, fiefdom. But when he was confronted about his activity, he turned around and said, well, two things. Let's start this conversation at 30, 30 million yuan. Um, but more importantly, I've secured a third seat on the Central Committee for the, for the General Logistics Department, so let's talk about how we're going to share that. Uh, so this is the sort of China that was happening. It was becoming the, you know, this mafia sort of organisational model where, you know, was, was corroding the ability of the centre to actually get anything done. You know, the, the party, there was no such thing as, as ideology for blokes like this, and there's no such thing as loyalty beyond you know, the patrons that he's been able to, to share his wealth and, and power with along the way. And this is a very dangerous thing for, you know, for example, the People's Liberation Army. So that's one of the things that Xi Jinping has to combat. It's not just about restoring legitimacy of the party by cleaning up corruption in the eyes of everybody. It's actually to regain control of the bureaucratic apparatus You've got to have a different way of. Um, you've got to restore authority, independent of these separate, fragmenting money channels. Now, the next emperor. Well, you know, I said that new China, era of Chinese politics began with the with the trial of Bo Xilai. I think that's, you know, I think that's 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 right. So, since September. Xi Jinping's revealed, who, uh, revealed more of, of, of who he is and how he wants to act, not necessarily where he's going. But why it was so important to destroy Bo Xilai, I think it operates on many levels. One is, in this moment in time, and this is not, a, this is not necessarily the way that China's always going to be or the Communist Party's always, always going to be, but in this drift, in this moment of, of 10, 20 years of of moral kind of vacuum at the top, it was the children of the founding fathers who stepped forward. They were the guys that were able to, to project authority and to garner legitimacy within the system. And there was really only a few of them that had the standing uh, and had the head start early enough in the 80s to have a crack at it. And Xi Jinping was one of them and Boi, uh, Bo Xilai was another. The problem, in many ways, Bo Xilai was um, 
you know, he was one of the most, he is one of the most formidable politicians that you know, any international statesman who's met him will say that. Um, extraordinary char charisma, extraordinary courage, uh, and extraordinary legitimacy too. He was, you know, he's a higher born princeling than Xi Jinping. His father was vice premier a few years earlier, entered the Central Committee uh, 10 years earlier. His father won the battles that Xi, Xi Jinping's father lost uh, in the late 80s and came to be a real kingmaker throughout the 90s. And so although Borsulai started just, um, uh, uh, he, was, he was behind Xi Jinping in the, in, the, in the bureaucratic race and he was a little bit older, which made it kind of difficult in terms of these new institutional rules for age that are coming in. It was all about um, would Xi Jinping be able to control somebody like Bo Xilai if Bo Xilai had made it into the inner leadership sanctum. And um, people tend to um, divide into two categories you know, in the princeling world. One is he would be uncontrollable, he'd be unbearable and he'd be really dangerous. So of course Xi Jinping had to drive a stake through his heart as soon as he had the opportunity. And the other was, uh, yes, he would take control and he would outshine Xi Jinping and that would be a good thing because that's exactly what, what China needs. So his supporters and opponents sort of had this view that he would, he would, he would suck authority away from Xi Jinping and somehow be, be um, more than, you know, become at least a co-equal in the standing committee and the history of the Chinese Communist Party shows that there's no such, it's not a very, there's no such thing as a stable equilibrium between two very well positioned people at, at, at the top. So Xi Jinping possibly had to destroy Bo Xilai just so that he could have a safe run uh, in power, but it turned out to be much more than that because he was able to, he was able to rally the support of all his father's allied um, families and forces dating right back to this red tradition that I've talked about on the lowest plateau in Shanxi province in the 30s, um, who see themselves as different, see themselves as, you know, rightly or wrongly, whether they're making this up to some degree, but more democratic, uh, more inclusive, more pluralistic in, in instinct, and then it sort of grafts into the 80s reformist um, families like Huiabang um, and others in the 80s. And so this, these are the families that supported, supported the father and who instinctively supported Xi Jinping and believed that he would stand for the same things that they believed they stood for. And to them, Bo Xilai was their natural enemy. It was a sort of clan enemy. So um, everybody, he was able to rally, Xi Jinping was able to rally all of that side of Chinese politics um, in destroying Bo Xilai. And on the other side of politics, what it was able to do is once you purge someone in, in China, they become a weapon to threaten and taint everybody else who's become, been associated with that person. So immediately in the trial of Bo Xilai, some dotted lines were, were of evidence were kind of left hanging and nothing's left to chance in these show trials. Um, and two of those dotted lines led to you know, what would have been two of the most important sort of background retired figures in the Chinese political system, one was Zhou Yongkang, the, um, the former security chief, and the other was Jiang Zemin, the, sort of the grand you know, godfather, the former president that refuses to be former. But I think Xi Jinping used the Bo Xilai trial to put his potential opponents, or the people who might have presumed to have background puppeteer kind of rights over him, in their place, and I think in an extraordinary gutsy fashion, um, if any of these guys knew that they were all going to end up where they have, you know, they would have found a way to get together. But it was all done in a very systematic kind of, before people knew it, the gate had clicked and another one had gone. Um, so 
now, after the Bor six, five, six months after the Borsulite trial, I think we are seeing the rise of an extraordinarily um, savvy but also gutsy leader who has come out of this ferment that we see in the last six years in particular, where everybody was talking about the crisis of legitimacy, will the Chinese Communist Party last? You know, we all know that it has the world's largest and most sophisticated um, coercive apparatus and this great extraordinary propaganda um, apparatus, but, the, but the, the lack of a centre just meant it was vulnerable, I think, to cracking in the middle. Um, and what Xi Jinping has done is he's convinced all these sort of warring tribes that, oh, there is a leader now, we can all kind of, well, we will all go back into our box. Um, and civil society don't play that game, this is what I'm talking at the elite. Civil society had to be coerced back into their box, but it happened immediately, and, ex and again, um, it happened coinciding with the Borsilai trial, where they, um, you know, I'd said that my time in China was defined by the rise of the internet and the microblogs. Uh, it's been not killed, but, but so much of that progress or that expanded virtual civil society has now been contracted in just five or six months um, in various campaigns against the internet, beginning with the public parading of the most influential politicised microbloggers. Um, on China Central Television and charging a couple of things like prostitution. So civil society has been coerced and scared back into its box. The elite families and have understood that there is now a, a, a new emperor, so there's nobody, I don't think, can now confront Xi Jinping directly. Um, and we haven't had that situation in China since, since 1989, I don't think. And we're in, which means that arguably, you know, the central party can now get on with pursuing its agenda, whatever that is, more effectively and more coherently um, than it has to date. You know, what is the agenda? And it's early days, and um, you know, I'm looking forward to your, your questions and your thoughts. But there's nothing that Xi Jinping's done. You know, he's a, he's, he does things by, by the book. You know, it's a pretty kind of twisted book at times, but he does it by the book. And he's inherited a policy platform uh, from his predecessors, and there's nothing that he's done which is, conflicts with the policy platform he's inherited on the economy, uh, on foreign policy, um, on, on propaganda, all sorts of things. But uh, what he's done is he's injected with, a, with, a, with an extreme sense of, of urgency and a preparedness to take risk, risks, which we haven't seen for, for many, many decades. This is the guy who came to power on an understanding that the whole thing was going to collapse if you know, that he wouldn't be able to hand over to the next guy in 2022 unless a whole bunch of things were restored. The party, uh, they needed to clean up corruption. We had to find a new reason for, for, for being. The Communist Party has to reinvent, re-establish you know, the reason for having a vanguard party um, and had to restore discipline and authority at the centre and it had to massage, coerce, convince civil society um, that now was not the time to sort of go off on your own tangents, that you know, the Communist Party was the future of China and so everybody needs to, to get back in line. So he's done, he's done I think, um, a remarkable job of harnessing power. He's scared a lot of people within and without the system. I mean, part of this accelerated program uh, has taken place on you know, on most of China's borders, um, the hugely accelerated program of deepening control of Hong Kong, attempting to in Taiwan, uh, and to and changing as a first stage the the status quo positions of um, control of 
positions in the East China Sea and South China Sea and even uh, on the Indian border. This is all not a new program, but what it does, what it, what's happened is we've seen it hugely accelerated and also preparedness to take risks, to preparedness to say, okay, sometimes things go wrong if an accident happens, you know, I'm actually going to stand behind it and take responsibility. There hasn't been anybody in the system for maybe 22 years who's been able to do that. So that can be a blessing when you're trying to get some things done. It can also be a scary thing for, um, for, for other parts of the world, particularly on China's borders. I thought I might finish up there and sort of and throw it open to, to, to questions. Um, but I'll just finish off with two different perceptions of you know, who the new guy is. He's very slick. This is his kind of presidential look, which we haven't seen from a Chinese leader before. And, uh, and this is the way that Time, leader, that Time magazine put him on the cover a few months ago, which I, th <laughs> which I thought was pretty cheeky. It's my pleasure this evening to uh, provide the vote of thanks uh, to John. And um, listening to John's presentation, I'm reminded by the view of uh, odd Arne Westad, uh, the author of uh, Restless Empire, and he argues basically that China's rise has been a lot less even than predicted, in no small part due to China's internal domestic challenges. And I think the presentation tonight by John really brought home the importance of recognising really that the domestic and international realms are tightly interconnected. Uh, and in a sense, one just can't comprehend the nature, of, not just the nature of China's rise in Asia and globally, but the conduct of its foreign policy and its strategic policies without understanding, uh, or at least having a, a basic understanding of, of, of what's going on internally uh, inside China. And the, the Byzantine world of uh, Beijing politics is, as John sort of outlined tonight, a difficult one to grasp at the best of times. So, in a way, John's done us a wonderful service, those of us like myself who are not China experts but who have a very strong interest in, in China's rise and, and how it's conducting its foreign and strategic policies. So in that sense, it's, it's really promoting some very important knowledge for non-China experts as well as those in the China studies field. Early on in his presentation tonight, John put up a slide of uh, a well-known family. Well, there's another well-known family in Australia that's pioneered uh, an understanding and engagement with Asia, and that's the Gano family. Uh, Ross uh, Gano, of course, was a pioneer in promoting engagement and, in a way, more importantly, in diffusing knowledge uh, among ordinary Australians about our region and, in particular, um, his role in the 1980s under the Hawke government as Australia's ambassador in Beijing very important in setting the relationship uh, on, a, on a course, uh, on a very favourable uh, course economically and, and, and politically. And John's role in promoting greater knowledge through his uh, fantastic work at Fairfax uh, about China has been you know, really important in, I think, promoting, uh, very much promoting everyday knowledge among Australians about what's going on inside China. Um, some of the unpredictable, unpredictable nature of uh, what's going on inside China. And I know that John's continuing. Uh, is it a month or six months? I, I didn't quite get that. Uh, I keep pushing. <laughs> John's going to be continuing to promote knowledge, but, but this time at a much more broader, with a much more broader remit at, at, a remit at, at Fairfax, and that is uh, uh, with, with you know, his eye across the entire region. So we can really look forward, I think, to some of John's contributions uh, in, in that space in the coming, uh, in the coming years. 
Um, Perspectives Asia is very important to uh, promoting general knowledge about the region, and I'd just like to register my appreciation for colleagues at, at GOMA, uh, Ruth and Russell, and, and to Simon this evening for their wonderful support. And you know, Griffith really values this as an important and enduring, enduring relationship in promoting knowledge uh, and indeed promoting discussion and debate about what's going on in the region is, you know, is really, you know, is really where, where the rubber hits the road in terms of, in, in terms of discussion of, of these sort, the sorts of issues we've been talking about, about tonight. So the promotion of knowledge, the stimulation of debate, uh, and, uh, and I think uh, John, uh, as tonight's speaker, really, uh, you know, really reinforced the importance of that. And as our second Perspectives Asia, uh, this year, you know, the bar has been set very high, I might say, for, for future. So I have a very heavy uh, and very important gift to give to you, to say <laughs> thank you for this evening. So can you please join me in thanking John? For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.